0: chapter 8 of the ordeal of elizabeth by anonymous this librivox recording is in the public domain miss cornelia and miss joanna sat at the breakfast table and looked aghast at elizabeth who had just informed them of her engagement the old dutch clock on the mantelpiece ticked loudly the sunlight fell in shining bars upon the snowy tablecloth the old dutch china and the glistening silver Miss Cornelia was reminded forcibly, painfully, of a morning in that same room many years ago when Peter had announced his marriage. Now the shock was not so great—was not unexpected, perhaps—but it brought with it, if less horror, an even greater disappointment. "'Well,' Elizabeth said, after a moment, when her important announcement had produced no response, and she looked proudly, yet half-wistfully, from one to the other. Well, she repeated, "Have you nothing to say? Can't you con congratulate me? Her voice faltered over the last words, my dear Miss Cornelia tried bravely to respond to the appeal in the girl's tone. Of course, we-we wish you every happiness. She stammered out. She stopped for tears choked her voice. She looked despairingly at her sister. Was this the moment that they had so often talked of together, planning with delicious thrills of pleasure all they would say and do? This China must be Elizabeth's when—when she marries, you know. We must lay by a little for—for Elizabeth's trousseau. This, in demure whispers to each other, for they would not for the world have suggested such a possibility to the girl herself. Nice girls, of course, must not think of getting married till the time came, but— With Elizabeth's beauty that time could not be long delayed, not even in the neighbourhood. The Fairy Prince would appear some day. Though he had never come to them, they believed devoutly that he would come to Elizabeth. And now—and now the Fairy Prince had come, or Elizabeth thought so. But they were only conscious of an overwhelming sense of doubt. "'You know so little about him, my dear.' Miss Cornelia could not help at last protesting. Elizabeth opened her eyes wide in genuine surprise. "'So little of him?' she repeated. "'Why, I—I know everything, Aunt Cornelia.' And she smiled to herself in silent amusement. Had she not seen him every day, and twice a day for a matter of four weeks? How long did they think, these older women, that it took to know a man? "'I know that he loves me.' she said after a moment, descending to further particulars. "'And I love him, and that's enough!' "'But you can't live on love,' urged Miss Joanna practically. "'You must have some money, you know, and I shouldn't think he—poor young man—had anything, at least judging by his clothes. Those artists never have, they say, and meat and everything indeed never was so dear as it is now. "'I didn't know you were so worldly, Aunt Joanna.' said Elizabeth loftily. Do you want me to marry for money? Miss Joanna was crushed. But, as she reflected in her own justification, one had to have something to eat. Let lovers say what they would. My dear, said Miss Cornelia, coming to the rescue with a little air of dignity that she could sometimes assume, we certainly wouldn't want you, not for the world, to marry for money. But one has to be— to be prudent. We have brought you up in a way—perhaps it was unwise. Poor mother would have thought so. But at any rate, you know nothing about economy. And you have only a little money, my dear, and he, I suppose, has nothing. He—he expects to make a great deal of money soon," faltered Elizabeth, coming down a little from her heights of romance. All this prudence was like a dash of cold water in the face. She felt disconcerted, indignant and yet conscious, through it all, of some reason in her aunt's objections. Yes, it was true. She had not been brought up to economy. She was fond of luxury and pretty things. In all her wishes for change she had never thought that it would be amusing to miss any of these. Miss Cornelia saw that she had produced some effect. I think—she went on, still speaking with unusual decision—that the most important thing is to find out something about him. You can't marry a man whom we know nothing about, except that he was born at the mills. We must investigate his character." Miss Cornelia felt, as she brought out this last sentence, that it sounded eminently practical, and it received from Miss Joanna, indeed, its full meed of respectful admiration. Elizabeth only smiled superior. You can investigate as much as you like, Aunt Cornelia, she said. I know all about him. And so the matter rested. But how could two elderly and innocent spinsters, who had never in their lives stirred two hundred miles from home, investigate the character of a young man who had lived in Chicago, and Paris, and Vienna, and all the four quarters of the world, apparently? They had no idea how to set about it. In this perplexity Miss Cornelia again rose to the occasion, and suggested that the rector might be a fit substitute for that invaluable possession a man in the family, who was always supposed to accomplish so much. And the rector, when consulted, proved unexpectedly resourceful. He had made Paul's acquaintance, and learned the name of the church in Chicago where he had sung for so many years. He had discovered, too, that the rector of this church was an old college friend of his, and he wrote to him at once, requesting full and confidential information as to the young man's character, antecedents, and prospects the answer seemed to the poor ladies a long time in coming. As a matter of fact, it arrived very promptly. The rector of St. Anne's at Chicago regretted to inform his old friend and colleague, the rector of St. Mary's at Bassett Mills, that he had no good account to give of Paul Halleck, who had not long ago been dismissed from the choir of his church, and had left behind him in Chicago many debts and a bad reputation." The young man was believed to have, as the rector added, genuine musical talent, but like many artists and musicians, he was morally irresponsible, dissipated, and reckless. The rector of St. Mary's repeated the verdict, as gently as he could, to the older ladies at the homestead. They bore it better than he expected. There were compensations, indeed, in the very extent of its severity. Had Halleck been less evidently and irredeemably a black sheep, there might have been some doubts as to their own duty. But as it was, they felt that they must break off the dreadful match at once, and at any cost. Yet the heart of each sister misgave her as they sat in a solemn conclave, and summoned Elizabeth before it. She came rosy, bright-eyed, fresh from talks with her lover and happy dreams of a brilliant future which they were to share together. She stood listening in apparent indifference, while Miss Cornelia faltered out the painful result of their inquiries. And when the worst was told, she had turned perhaps a trifle pale, but otherwise she seemed unmoved. "'I don't know why you tell me all this, Auntie,' she said slowly. "'I—I am sorry to hear it, but it can make no difference.' "'No difference?' Miss Cornelia repeated, stupefied. No difference, Elizabeth? No. It can't change my love for him, she said defiantly. He told me that he has enemies at Chicago, and that you would probably unearth a lot of old scandals, and I promised that it should make no difference. Perhaps some of them are true. I don't care, Auntie. I can't—I can't give him up, she went on, with a sudden change of tone and clasping her hands appealingly. I tried to once before, and— I- I couldn't. If he were to go away now and leave me, I should die. I couldn't bear to go on living without him. The girl's face was flushed, her voice tremulous with feeling. It was evident that she fully meant, or thought she meant, what she said. Her aunts looked at her in helpless perplexity. My darling, Miss Cornelia faltered out at last. Think how much better it is to give him up now than— to marry him and be unhappy. You don't know. Men are very bad. One reads such things in the newspapers. If he were to ill-treat you, desert you—' "'Ah, but he won't,' said Elizabeth, smiling incredulously. "'You needn't worry, Aunt Cornelia. We shall be very happy. But even if we were not,' she concluded, with a sudden burst of defiance, "'if I thought that he would beat me, treat me like a dog, I don't care.' "'I should marry him to-morrow.' And she thrust out her full underlip, and stood facing them, with a look of obstinacy on her fair, girlish face, that for the moment bore a strong resemblance to her father. To Miss Cornelia's mind there rose again, with startling vividness, the events of twenty years before. The recollection seemed to endow her with an unwanted and unnatural strength. She went over to where Elizabeth stood, and took both the girl's hot hands and hers elizabeth she said desperately you don't know what you're saying you will be miserable if you marry that man you don't know what it is to live with a person who is beneath you who who drags you down we know my darling we've seen it be warned by us and give him up miss cornelia had never in all her gentle life spoken with so much vehemence elizabeth in her astonishment stood for a moment absolutely passive She stole a glance at Miss Joanna. She was weeping quietly. Elizabeth's own face worked. Her lip quivered. "'I know whom you mean,' she broke out suddenly in a quick, hard voice. "'You're thinking of my mother!' And then, in the dismayed pause that followed, she dragged her hands away from Miss Cornelia's grasp and fled from the room. The two older women looked at one another in silence. "'I didn't know—' Miss Joanna said at last in a low, awe struck tone, that the child knew anything about-about poor Malvina. End of chapter eight.